0: Well, here argument now, number 928841, uh, Kittrich Powell versus Nevada. Uh, Mr. Pachetta. Thank
1: you, Your Honor. Is this... Yes, very accurate, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, the issue upon which this court granted certiorari in this case is a very narrow one, and I submit it becomes even narrower in light of the questions that are not contested by a respondent or any party in this case. And I'd like to begin, if I may, by emphasizing uh, what is not an issue as we understand it. First, uh, no one before the court, as I understand it, is asking this court to reconsider Griffith versus Kentucky, and therefore I would submit that it is conceded before this court that any uh, federal constitutional decision which is currently in effect uh, must be applied to any decision on the merits of Mr. Powell's case, uh, since his case is not yet final on direct appeal. I submit it is further uh, not contested before this court that there was a presumptive McLaughlin violation in this case uh, because the 48, uh, the uh, petitioner did not receive a judicial determination of probable cause within the 48-hour time limit uh, in which that is presumptively reasonable under McLaughlin. And so third, I would submit it is not contested uh, that under McLaughlin, if it is applied uh, pursuant to Griffith versus Kentucky, uh, the Nevada Supreme Court erred in failing to give Mr. Powell the benefit of that decision.
2: Correctly, that if the Nevada Supreme Court had not on its own brought up McLaughlin, it would not be in this case, you would have forfeited it because the only thing that was raised by Powell was arraignment and not probable cause.
1: Uh, I submit that we possibly could have raised it uh, in the context of an ineffective assistance claim in post-conviction, though that's not entirely But it wasn't clear. in
2: this case until the Nevada Supreme Court put it there. Exactly, Your Honor.
1: I agree. It, what we acknowledge it was not raised. Uh, the Nevada Supreme Court, which does so periodically, reached out to sponse <laughs> and threw this issue out of the case. Uh, and it decided it... Uh, Correctly with respect to the substance, but incorrectly with respect to its retroactive effect.
2: Wouldn't it be possible for the Nevada Supreme Court to say on remand, sorry, we we certainly made a mistake, had we realized that McLaughlin had to be retroactive, we never would have brought it up, and so now we're deleting it.
1: That would be a terribly uh, result-oriented result in the case, Your Honor, but I submit that until the Nevada Supreme Court decides to do that, uh, that question is premature at this point. Uh, We might conceivably uh, raise a law of the case uh, argument in the Nevada Supreme Court, since there is a very strong law of the case doctrine in Nevada. Uh, If the Nevada Supreme Court found some way uh, to wriggle off uh, the McLaughlin hook, uh, I think that's a a situation we should address if it in fact does so. But they certainly have the power, and that has not been contested by any party to this case, uh, to reach out and decide this federal constitutional question, and having done so under Cohen versus Cowell's media and all of this Court's precedents having reached the issue on the merits, uh, the jurisdiction is properly in this Court. I submit it's for another day if the Nevada Supreme Court, as are many of the issues in this case, uh, are for consideration another day if the Nevada Supreme Court acts on remand in a manner that denies petitioner relief. Well,
2: Mr. Pachetta, unless uh, McLaughlin carries with it an exclusionary rule, uh, what difference is it going to make in the judgment below of conviction?
1: Your Honor, it's our position that the existence or nonexistence of a federal exclusionary remedy for a McLaughlin violation is unnecessary to the disposition of this case, because Nevada has its own state law uh, remedy, essentially a state law McNabb-Mallory rule, which on remand, once it is... uh, once it is required to properly apply McLaughlin to this case, uh, will kick in. And that's why we've cited uh, a number and of— you
2: say that under Nevada state law alone, the uh, statement would have to be excluded from evidence—
1: we submit that it would have to be excluded under federal and state law because we submit on the merits that there should be a federal exclusionary remedy. Uh, we submit that that uh, issue also is not necessary to the disposition of the case because of the existence of a state law remedy for that violation. That's why we have cited Welsh versus Wisconsin and other cases in our reply brief uh, in which very similar situations have arisen in which a federal constitutional violation implicates a state law remedy in which this court has not proceeded to the federal exclusionary remedy that would be required, if any, uh, but remands for consideration under the state law remedy.
3: Mr. Pichetta, I'm sure that is one of our options, and I guess in my mind whether it's an option we should take or not depends on the probability that Nevada will decide the exclusionary issue in a way which is, number one, dispositive of the case and be strictly on state law grounds. Uh, if there were a reasonable likelihood of decision on federal grounds, then uh, it seems to me it might be prudent for us to go further here. Can, can, you, can you tell me categorically uh, that, in fact, Nevada's state law rule, as distinct from Nevada's readiness to follow any federal exclusionary rule, would be, so far
1: as you understand it, dispositive in this case? I believe so, Your Honor, and I believe that the terms of the Nevada Supreme Court's but you opinion. You
2: told me in an answer to the first question that the Nevada Supreme Court might, you said, wriggle out of it or say, we started out with a question about arraignment under Nevada law, and then we picked up McLaughlin on our own and made a mistake in failing to understand that it is retroactive. And then we returned, and in fact, our decision was about the arraignment Nevada state law ground. Couldn't this case go back and the Nevada Supreme Court could say, thank you for the instruction about McLaughlin. We now understand that it's retroactive. It was never raised by Powell. Our our decision on arraignment stands just the way we wrote it. Just take out those paragraphs about McLaughlin, and we've got a decision based solely on state law.
1: But, Your Honor, I don't think this Court should pretermitt that analysis by the Nevada Supreme Court. Uh, I would submit that if, once this Court is properly invested with jurisdiction over the federal question, which it is, this Court's responsibility is to decide the federal question. Justice if it, Souter
2: asked you what could the Nevada Supreme Court do on remand, and would you represent that indeed they would exclude this evidence? You have already, I think, uh, quite candidly said the Nevada Supreme Court could nonetheless decide this case on the state ground that they started and ended with. That is the arraignment point.
1: Your Honor, what I was uh, suggesting in answer to Justice O'Connor's question was that since there is a state law remedy available for the federal law violation, that this court need not proceed to um, delineate the scope of the federal exclusionary remedy uh, I submit that what I, what I believe I, Justice Souter's question was was that if this is remanded, and if the Nevada Supreme Court decides the McLaughlin issue on the merits, as I believe it must, the availability of the state law remedy will result in reversal. That's our position. Now, if, there, if the Nevada Supreme uh, i would uh, agree that the Nevada Supreme Court could do any number of things. It could reverse on remand on an entirely different ground and never reach this issue. But the question before this court is whether, having reached this issue, they decided it correctly. Well, the question,
0: as you said in the beginning, Mr. Pacheco, is narrow. And as you continue to discuss it, it's narrow indeed. One, perhaps we would not ordinarily grant, if if it's as narrow as you say, uh, an hour's argument on It's simply whether uh, the Supreme Court of Nevada was wrong in deciding that McLaughlin would not be given retroactive effect. And you say... We we can't possibly go any further than that.
1: I'm not saying that you can't, Your Honor. I'm saying that under this Court's consistent practice, you shouldn't. Uh, because it's unnecessary to the disposition of the case. I'd just like to remind the Court that in our uh, petition for certiorari, all we asked for was for this uh, judgment to be vacated and the case remanded for proper consideration in light of Griffiths. So although you have given us uh, this hour, Your Honor, uh, that is actually more than we asked for. Well, maybe Um, we think we need the full hour. (laughs) You can, let me, may, may I just
3: go back to the, to the Nevada law question? Does Nevada uh, have an, an announced rule uh, that when relief can be granted uh, as requested by a, a prisoner, Nevada will always take up the state law issue first? I don't believe there is. Exactly I, what I'm getting at is what is the probability that if we rule as narrowly as you submit we, we should do, that in fact uh, we will simply, uh, that we will have done anything more than than perhaps uh, uh, engage in a summary reversal which will turn
1: out to be of of no significance. I I disagree, Your Honor. I believe in the terms of the Nevada Supreme Court opinion, which accept the prejudicial effect of the statement that was elicited from the defendant as a result of this um, delay in the probable cause determination, will govern their disposition of this issue. I submit that if this Court uh, reverses and remands for further proceedings in the Nevada Supreme Court, that the Nevada Supreme Court will properly apply its state law remedy, which it has traditionally adhered to, and it will reverse this case. And I don't, you know, al- although it is difficult for me to stand up for the Nevada Supreme Court, uh, until they do something that is unfair to us uh, in that regard, uh, well, I Is submit- it unfair
2: to say that this is a defense that you forfeited? And therefore, we are going to make it clear that all we were trying to do was to tell the troops in Nevada. From now on, you've got to adhere to the 48-hour standard. He said that en passant in a case that was about arraignment.
1: I, I disagree, Your Honor. First, because under uh, this court's consistent jurisprudence, most recently Ilst versus Nunemaker, a federal law uh, claim can be forfeited all the way through uh, a state system, and if it is revived by being considered on the merits by the highest court of the state, it's revived. Uh, jur- jurisdiction of this court attaches, and the decision of the federal question uh, by the state court is subject to review. On the, qu- on the question of whether this was dealt with on passant, I'd like to get to what I think is the thrust of respondent's contention, and really respondent's uh, only contention, which is that the Nevada Supreme Court did not, in fact, decide the Fourth Amendment question just in this case. Just before you
4: get that, just, just one last inquiry on this. Uh, well, what concerns me, Mr. Pichetta, is that this is a capital case— Even if we assume that we need not reach the federal question, even if we intend to remand it to the state, to give the state a chance of applying state law if it wishes, why shouldn't we nonetheless resolve the federal question just to prevent this thing from ping-ponging back and forth forever? It's obviously in your interest to have this case decided in as piecemeal a fashion as possible. That is to say, if the federal issue is going to be decided, you would, because it might be decided against you, you'd rather have it decided later. Let's send it back to, uh, to Nevada. Then they will say, no, we won't apply the state ground. And then you will say, but you must apply the federal ground. And they will say, no, we don't have to apply the federal ground. Then it'll come up to us, and the thing strings out. Why don't we terminate this litigation as, as completely as possible now by deciding the federal issue, so just in case the Nevada court... Uh, doesn't hold the way you think it will on the state ground, we will spare you the trouble of another appeal to this court.
1: Without uh, being overly uh, disingenuous about it, Your Honor, I would say that ever since Ashwander, uh, this court has not decided federal constitutional questions just in case. Uh, It has consistently adhered to the practice that if there is uh, a state law remedy, uh, or if there is a federal constitutional question which is presented but which is not necessary to the decision, uh, that it will not reach that question. Now, we are fairly uh, confident, uh, perhaps overly confident, uh, that our analysis of the federal exclusionary rule is accurate and that there should be a federal exclusionary remedy consistent with Justice Blackmun's opinion in uh, Brand v. Illinois. Uh, But I think that what I have to focus on uh, before this court is obtaining relief for my client. And as I see it, remanding this case to the Nevada Supreme Court will uh, result in that relief.
5: But although it's not in the question presented, do you think that it's also necessary, even under your minimum suggested approach, that we uh, reach the question of whether the Nevada Supreme Court was correct in saying that a right to seasonable arraignment is waived when you waive your Miranda rights?
1: I submit that or there, is that a
5: matter of state law?
1: I submit, Your Honor, that that is correctly not within the question presented. But I additionally submit that that is also a question of state law, which this court need not reach. And their decision, the Nevada Supreme Court's decision... Not i it.
2: If It's a pure question of state law, which Nevada seemed to have treated it. The arraignment question was raised, as I understand it, as a question of state law. It was resolved as a question of state law, that this court has no business with it. I agree, Your Honor. Uh,
1: as, as I was,
5: as, uh, do you, and, and do you, is it clear to you that it's a question of state law? I believe with the respect Nevada court treated it.
1: I, I, I submit, with respect to the arraignment and first appearance statutory issue, that that is a question of state law. And if you look at uh, page eight of the joint appendix, uh, the fact that the Nevada Supreme Court, in resolving the question of waiver, uh, referred explicitly to the defendant's waiver of, quote, his right to an appearance before a magistrate within 72 hours, which is the state law ground, the state statute, which it had just found unconstitutional on McLaughlin grounds, uh, makes it absolutely clear that that waiver point was decided purely as a question of state law and does not impact uh, the disposition of the Fourth Amendment. And we'll just footnote the
5: fact that I don't understand how a state law waiver controls the existence of a federal right.
1: My point exactly, Your Honor. Uh, if, as the uh, state urges that there has been a waiver, our response to that is Your Honor's response to that. Uh, there has been no waiver of the federal constitutional right. And the discussion of the waiver issue in the Nevada Supreme Court's opinion is directed entirely at the state statutory right because, having found the McLaughlin uh, violation, the Nevada Supreme Court then tripped in this footnote and said, but we are not going to apply it to petitioners' case. And I would just like to repeat uh, for emphasis we've Just tried- to
2: just make sure I understand it correctly, that everything that they said about uh, waiver because of the Miranda warnings, and that all tied into the arraignment state ground. And they were not dealing with any federal right anymore because they thought. Abs- they thought incorrectly that McLaughlin wasn't retroactive.
1: Absolutely, Your Honor. That portion of the opinion deals solely with, solely with the arraignment and first appearance statute, not with the uh, Fourth Amendment ground. <laughs> because, as I think the court recognizes, uh, the Nevada Supreme Court, having found the Fourth Amendment violation, then we did not apply that rule to petitioner's case, despite the fact that it was before it on direct appeal. Now, this
2: is an opinion that starts with state law arraignment. Shifts to federal probable cause, says federal probable cause not retroactive, goes back to arraignment, and continues down the line with state law.
1: Yes, Yes, Your Honor. I I agree that there are shards sticking up in various places uh, on different issues, but what they get to, and what I submit... uh, renders the uh, respondent's argument completely indefensible is the language that appears on page six of the joint appendix when they finally get to the McLaughlin issue, and they say, quote, the McLaughlin case renders NRS 171.178.3 unconstitutional. Based on McLaughlin, we hold, we hold that a suspect must come before a magistrate within 48 hours, including non-judicial days, for a probable cause determination. Now, we've cited a number of cases in our briefing uh, on independent and adequate state grounds, and I submit that this language puts the state's position completely out of court. When a, a lower court says we hold uh, that a federal constitutional decision <coughs> renders our practice unconstitutional, I submit that it really couldn't be clearer. And it is a- immediately after that a paragraph uh, that the uh, Nevada Supreme Court goes in a footnote uh, to hey, the I retroactivity. It's saying that it
0: holds our practice country It says based on McLaughlin, we hold that a suspect must come before a magistrate within 48 hours, including a, for a probable cause determination. It doesn't say what the consequences of failure to come before the magistrate are.
1: I, I agree, but the previous uh, portion of its opinion in which it cited the Huebner line of state cases uh, are the cases that adopt the McNabb, a state McNabb-Mallory rule. So it's our position that having found, having gone through that analysis, uh, having analyzed the question in terms of the uh, inadmissibility of a statement um, uh, obtained in part as on the basis of uh, uh, illegal uh, Prolongation of detention.
6: Yes, but that, in, the, uh, in their footnote, they don't just talk about inadmissibility of the statement. They seem to assume in the footnote that if there was a violation of the 72 hour state law rule or the 48 hour federal rule, that the prisoner would automatically be entitled to his freedom, whether he confessed or not. That's the way that footnote reads. They're talking about untold numbers uh, would be. All be set free. That Uh, can't be the right remedy, is it?
1: uh, I don't think it is is as a matter of state law. You're not representing that
6: that's the state law remedy that would be applied? No, Your Honor. Uh, What is the case that holds that there's an exclusionary rule that is applied as a matter of state law when there's a violation of federal law as
1: to the period of detention? I've, we cited the Hubner versus, versus State, Morgan versus Sheriff, Berman versus Sheriff. All of these cases uh, are actually cited in the Nevada Supreme Court opinion. Uh, at and what the is the proposition five. for you cite them? That there is a state McNabb-Mallory rule that or, results in the, in the state detention rule. That in, Well, that inadmissibility of a statement arises from an illegal prolongation of detention. But illegal because of uh, the state requirement of prompt arraignment. They have not, uh, they have not uh, distinguished between constitutional violations, state law violations in those cases. Well, delay is delay, as, as I see it. We,
0: we of course, this court has followed a McNabb-Mallory type of rule, and yet surely it's an open question here whether an exclusionary rule accompanies the violation of the McLaughlin rule. Why wouldn't the Nevada Court take the same position? Yes, in Huebner we have a McNabb-Mallory rule, but that doesn't necessarily answer the questions to the remedy for a violation of the uh, 48-hour arraignment right.
1: I submit that the terms of those previous decisions do indicate that a delay which is... Concededly, uh, de- concededly does not invoke a federal exclusionary rule under uh, McNabb-Mallory because McNabb-Mallory is not a federal constitutional rule, nonetheless results in ad- inadmissibility. And it's our position that that line of cases uh, does not discriminate amongst <coughs> us, state law violations, federal law violations, in prolongation of detention. Now, to turn uh, briefly to the question of the federal exclusionary rule, I submit that this is purely uh, uh, a rule that would follow all of the principles enunciated by numerous decisions in this court, that the purpose of the exclusionary rule is to deter the wrongful conduct. Uh, Here we have a situation where it is within the power of the police within this 48-hour uh, presumptive period or at any period without unnecessary t- delay to cause the probable cause determination to be made. They didn't. Uh, instead, they elicited a statement. Now, the question, it seems is to me, it is— it clear is, that the
5: statement was elicited uh, before the hearing was held? They, because the statement and the hearing were both November 7.
1: The Nevada Supreme Court <coughs> implicitly found it did. Uh, the record does not
5: show one way or the other. The, the Nevada Supreme Court found that the statement was prior to the
1: hearing. Implicitly, they made a finding. Implicitly, Implicitly, yes. On the basis of
4: what? The Wisconsin Supreme Court made that finding. Uh, the, I'm, I'm
1: sorry. The, the Nevada
4: Supreme Court made the finding. The Nevada Supreme
1: Court's opinion says there, are, there is prejudice from the admissibility the of these. There's nothing in the record, you tell us. On the basis of the fact that these statements, the statement was elicited the same day as the. Um, uh, as the probable cause determination. We've conceded that, uh, certainly, before this Court. Uh, there is nothing, however, in the record upon which this Court can say the Nevada Supreme Court was uh, clearly erroneous in that regard. It simply doesn't show it, and that's, I, I take it largely because it wasn't litigated below. Did the
0: Nevada Supreme Court say anything more than that they both happened on the same day? No. Well, how can you say they made an, it made an implicit finding that one happened before the other? Because they
1: refer to the eliciting of the statements as being prejudicial in their discussion of the Huebner uh, rule, which well, is key to...
0: But the, surely, though, no, that is the most implicit of implicit
1: findings, if that's all
0: there is to it. A finding is a finding, Your Honor. I'm afraid that... I agree that a finding is a finding. I just don't agree with you that this is a finding.
1: Well, I I submit that this is entitled under Sumner versus Mata and previous cases to the same respect that any state court finding is. Now, granted, because of the posture in which this case uh, comes to this court, uh, the record is not pellucid on many issues. Uh, That is why we submit that this case has to go back to the Nevada Supreme Court. In fact, uh, many of the uh, respondents' arguments, including complaining about the inability to show attenuation or necessary delay are, in fact, grants for reversing this judgment and not for affirming it. And so, although the, technically the state can't urge those grants because no cross-petition was filed, uh, we submit that uh, essentially they have conceded that there have to be uh, uh, future proceedings in this case. Now, with respect the to the deterrent— that
2: the Navarro Supreme Court could find is that the November 7th statement was essentially duplicative, um, so— whatever error existed was harmless because the same uh, statements to the same effect had been made on November 3, which was well within the 48 hours?
1: I submit, Your Honor, that's at most a mixed question. Uh, The question of harmlessness is not a a, a purely factual issue, which the Nevada Supreme Court can determine. I'd just like to say one more word about the deterrent effect of a federal— I'm
2: sorry, I didn't follow the bottom line from that. If the Nevada Supreme Court conceivably could say— that the November 7th statement is simply a repetition of the statement made on November 3rd and therefore it was whatever uh, it was harmless.
1: It, it can say it, but that I submit is not a factual finding to which this court must defer. Uh,
2: but they haven't. Harmlessness
1: said, is, I mean, is so a federal so constitution. Okay,
2: would that be the end of the case? I mean, what federal question would you have left then?
1: Well, first of all, we don't concede that they're uh, identical. Uh, One of the statements is about uh, seven pages long. The other is 40 pages long, considerably more detailed. So that fruit is significantly more damaging than the first statement. But I would just like to uh, emphasize that uh, that issue is not uh, a factual finding to which this court must defer.
3: Let's assume that the Nevada Supreme Court said, well, we're going to send it back to the trial court uh, for a consideration of harmlessness or a consideration of the somewhat broader issue of attenuation.
1: Uh, the the Nevada Supreme Court could perfectly well do that. In fact, they should do that, Your Honor, I submit. And under Rule 250, under Nevada Supreme Court Rule 254-H, we would ask for them to do that unless they simply reverse. One final point about uh, the federal uh, exclusionary remedy... Uh, this has exactly the same problems, this kind of situation or involving McLaughlin, uh, as every other exclusionary situation has. What we're trying to deter is the police from profiting from the illegal prolongation of the delay. This a federal exclusionary remedy would be narrowly tailored to that, uh, to the harm that is caused by that illegal prolongation. And therefore, based on uh, the argument we presented in the briefs, um, we would uh, submit that this Court should adopt a federal exclusionary remedy if it reaches that question, which, again, I emphasize it does not need to. If I may, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Pichetta. Mr. Seaton?
7: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Before we go further, I I would like to clearly delineate what the Nevada procedure was in November of 1989. When a prisoner was taken to the, uh, when he was arrested, uh, he would be taken to the booking desk, uh, at which time the various booking procedures would go on, either simultaneous with that or immediately thereafter at the jail. Was this in Clark County? This is in Clark County, Nevada, yes, it is. Immediately after, at least, the booking procedure, the police officer who was in charge of the arrest, in this case Detective Al Levitt, would fill out what is known as the Affidavit of Probable Cause, along with other papers. Uh, Copies of those and the original would go to various places. One of them would go to the Justice of the Peace across the street in the courthouse. Uh, That Justice of the Peace in those days... Uh, within 72 hours, excluding weekends and holidays, would read the declaration and determine whether or not there was probable cause to hold the prisoner for any greater length of time. Completely separate and apart from that procedure in Nevada at that time and today is the procedure of first appearance, and that is governed entirely by NRS Nevada Revised Statute 171.178. And that statute really says just about the same thing, that within 72 hours, excluding weekends and holidays, the uh, prisoner must be brought before the uh, justice of the peace for a first appearance, <clears throat> at which time uh, that person is then advised of the various rights that uh, attach to his proceedings. So that the, the court understands fully, the procedures then are similar in that the uh, time limitations put uh, forth by the legislature in the first appearance statute uh, were used as guidelines uh, by Nevada officials or police officers in determining how quickly they had to obey the prompt uh, dictate of uh, Gerstein, and they chose to utilize the, the uh, 72 hours. The defendant in this case has never, until coming before this court, ...objected to uh, any sort of a probable cause difficulty. It has always been couched in terms of a delay in first appearance. And indeed, the Nevada Supreme Court began its opinion in this particular area, recognizing that that was the specific claim. Now, since I would prefer to spend most of my time uh, discussing the substantive issues that are before this court relative to the exclusionary rule... Uh, I'd like to say a brief word about jurisdiction and then go on to that area. As I stated, the, uh, the issue has always been framed uh, in terms of first appearance and not improbable cause. Probable cause, as it relates to the Nevada Supreme Court's opinion, is relevant only if the, those two procedures, probable cause and first appearance, are combined, and they are not in Nevada. And uh, never have been, and are not today.
5: Excuse me. In this case, was there a probable cause uh, determination by a magistrate? There was. When? It was on November made 7 or before? On
7: November the 7th.
5: But that was beyond the time allowed in McLaughlin.
7: It was beyond the time in McLaughlin. It was done. Whether or in...
5: not the probable cause and the arraignment proceeding are combined, <clears throat> there was a violation of McLaughlin. Assuming McLaughlin is retroactive, yes, like I think
7: it is. it is retroactive. I have no quarrel with that proposition.
5: So we, we begin with the premise that there's been a McLaughlin violation, and that the Nevada Supreme Court is wrong on that point.
7: There was, using the retroactivity analysis, there was a McLaughlin violation, yes.
5: And McLaughlin is retroactive, is it not? It is. And the Nevada Supreme Court was wrong on that point, was it not?
7: If... Yes they were wrong on saying that McLaughlin was was not retroactive, uh, but McLaugh the discussion in McLaughlin was not dispositive of the issue that was before the court. The McLaughlin decision has nothing to do with first appearances. The, the McLaughlin discussion by the Nevada Supreme Court had no place in this discussion of why uh, whether or not there was a an inappropriate delay in first appearance
5: is, is, is it Plausible to read the Nevada Supreme Court <clears throat> opinion as saying that if there were a McLaughlin violation, this statement would have to be excluded under the state's Hubner rule.
7: It is not. Uh, we are not able to do that, I believe, uh, Your Honor. We, 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 I didn't hear you. We are not able to make such a conclusion. Uh, the the Nevada Supreme Court are just going from the. Dis-
2: doesn't the Nevada Supreme Court's opinion indicate that they they even thought that. If there had been, if if the McLaughlin decision is retroactive, as everyone agrees it is, uh, they would have to just release this defendant? I mean, that's what the footnote... Well,
7: the footnote does seem to indicate that, and that clearly is not the law in the state of Nevada, um, and they have uh, so said.
5: Well, what then was the purpose of Nevada's discussing McLaughlin at all?
7: I wish I knew the answer to that question. Uh, I do not know the answer to the question. What I do know.
5: Well, in a death case, I think we should know, don't you?
7: I agree. Uh, and
4: you,
2: but when this curious opinion came down, you didn't ask to have it uh, clarified because it goes from first appearance, as you call it, and then it shifts to this McLaughlin probable cause, then goes back to first appearance. So it would be, apart from this intrusion of McLaughlin and the slip, an entirely state law decision that would have no place in this court. Th- you didn't, when, when this curious thing came out that, about McLaughlin, you didn't know how it got in there. Certainly wasn't asked for by either of the parties. You didn't ask the court to um, alter or amend its decision?
7: We add, my knowledge of, of the appellate procedure that took place was that uh, upon receiving the opinion, uh, a motion for rehearing was uh, asked for. Uh, In fact, if memory serves me correct, uh, both parties asked for that rehearing. It was declined, and the Supreme Court chose not to have a rehearing, but to rely on their judgment as they wrote it. And other than that, I I can't offer an explanation as to why they did what they did, uh, but I can offer uh, the conclusion that what they did really had no bearing on the only question that was before the court.
2: Couldn't then, on remand, if we were to to say, Nevada Supreme Court, McLaughlin's retroactive. Couldn't they then say, thank you for that information about federal law. Now we understand that this case was about arraignment. It started there, it ended there. We never would have intruded this suggestion on our own if we had known that what we were saying was incorrect about the retroactivity.
7: They they could take that position. Uh, I think what I would uh, forward to the court at this time is that uh, it's unnecessary to do that. I believe that the judgment below, uh, even though uh, torturously gotten to, was correct. I believe that the way that the Nevada Supreme Court ultimately disposed of the case is a correct one, and that for this... Uh, court to send it back for that kind of, uh, of correcting uh, would, would render this court's uh, judgment not more much more than an advisory opinion, which I know even it we not with you, do.
5: Even if we're with you so far, uh, was not in this case there a combined arraignment and probable cause hearing
7: on November 7th? There was not. On November 7th, the only thing that happened was an ex-party reading by the Justice of the Peace of the Declaration of Arrest. It's a
5: simply McLaughlin
7: hearing. It is simply McLaughlin. The first appearance occurred late on November the 13th, uh, 1989. So clearly, in this case,
6: two separate proceedings were had. Uh, and uh, whether the court, of the Nevada I have Supreme, I confess, I'm a little puzzled. You're saying the probable cause determination is not made in the course of the first appearance before the magistrate? It is not. But the the Supreme Court of Nevada, in page 6, is based on McLaughlin, we hold that a suspect must come before a magistrate within 48 hours, including nonjudicial delays, for a probable cause determination. That reads to me like saying they have to have the probable cause determination in the first appearance. One
7: reading of the opinion might be very similar to what you're suggesting. You'll agree that sentence says that. That sentence says that. What says something else in the opinion? Well... The, the court might have been, at that particular moment, deciding
6: to... That's not my question. What is, what is there in the opinion that says something else? Something other so than. Uh, there are two separate proceedings, but does the court say that, in elsewhere in its opinion, that the probable cause determination is not made in the first appearance here?
7: No, not to my recollection, and that, that is what uh, I think befuddles some of us, because they started off talking about first appearance, and then all of a sudden, recognizing the McLaughlin decision, started talking about it as though it applied to the uh, statutory first appearance, when it, in fact it did not. And then they finished up, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, by
6: uh, holding their decision based on uh, Nevada waiver law of the uh, Miranda, of an and right. I just don't understand what the authority is for the proposition that the probable cause determination is not made in the first appearance hearing. Which well, seems to be something you're arguing.
7: Yes, I, I am arguing that and the authority.
6: What, what is there in writing that tells us that is so?
7: My answer to uh, Justice uh, Kennedy a few moments ago that the probable cause hearing in this case was held on November the 7th, and on November the 13th, uh, the first appearance was held. That shows, in fact, in this
6: case, there were two
7: separate proceedings.
6: The, that doesn't show that it is correct to have, uh, not to make the probable cause determination in the first appearance hearing.
7: No, it, it could be correct. Uh, obviously, California does that in some of their. And, and obviously,
6: the Nevada Supreme Court says that. What you're supposed to do in Nevada, according to this opinion. Well, and if they're saying that, uh, and we don't know that that's what they're saying, you but it just agreed with me that that's what that sentence says. Well, I don't know if that's what that sentence means. We—that's well, oh, what it says. We have some kind of secret meaning behind what the words are. Go,
2: so, go back. You were telling us what happened uh, in in this county in, in Nevada. I think you started out that way. Are these still separate proceedings?
7: Yes, they are still separate proceedings. They have never been combined. Uh, in in the years since Gerstein, I have not once seen a probable cause determination made at the same time that a first appearance is made. There is no case holding. Uh, the The statute in question, the first appearance statute, alludes absolutely not at all to probable cause. That is... Uh, an animal that has come about, I think, by virtue of, of the Gerstein decision and our state's efforts uh, by uh, local rule to abide by it. And in doing that, they chose to follow the 72-hour rule that was announced in the uh, in the first appearance. Uh, so so Nevada said. Supreme Court made it clear
6: <clears throat> that the
7: Huebner
5: line of cases would not apply to a violation of the time limits for a probable cause hearing?
7: Well, in... Uh, With respect to uh, my opposing counsel's statement, I would tell the court that the Nevada Supreme Court, in in that line of cases, has stated uh, what the rule is in almost all of the United States, and that is that the McNabb-Mallory line of cases uh, do not have to apply to the states. And our state does not follow uh, that line of cases. My
5: question was, has Nevada said, as a definitive matter, that its state McNag-Mallory rule does not apply to a probable (coughs) cause hearing when the probable cause hearing is beyond the legally set
7: time. It has not. Thank you. And I say that, if I might just follow up on it, because in Nevada there are a dearth of cases, if there are any at all, which discuss the problem that faces us here, that discusses any sort of a probable cause difficulty. All of the cases talk about first appearance. That factor may have been something that aided the uh, court in uh, making its wrongful assumptions. It, it was just so f- unfamiliar with a local, local procedure, which, which had not ever before come before it, that it, in reading McLaughlin, just assumed that it applied back
6: to the first appearance uh, statute. Your, your, first, your first appearance hearing, is that always an arraignment where the defendant pleads not guilty or guilty? Unless it is
7: continued for that purpose,
6: uh, uh, it is. In case, it was an arraignment.
7: I, I can't tell you whether or not there was a continuation, but the, but when they finally had the, the first adherence...
6: hearing was an arraignment. It was an arraignment, to, to the best so of my knowledge So is it not conceivable that the proper <clears throat> cause determination could take place at the earlier date, with the defendant present or not present, yet still have the arraignment at a later date? That is the procedure in Nevada. Yeah. So that... I mean, it, it could be the first appearance would have been at the time of the probable cause determination rather than the arraignment, is what I'm asking.
7: Our, our first appearances mu- cannot take place ex parte. They, they may, must take place in front of the justice of the peace. I understand, but they are not necessarily <clears throat> arraignment. I believe eventually, given continuances, they are always the arraignment, the the. the well, let me
6: ask you this. Is it possible, as a matter of Nevada law, that on November 7th, the, judge, the magistrate made a probable cause determination at which the defendant was present? Or maybe he wasn't, but as a matter of routine, he could have been present, even though he was not yet ready for arraignment. No. It could not happen. It does not happen.
7: It could happen, yes. If a judge somehow summoned a defendant before him in his chambers where the, uh, the
6: probable cause hearings are held, that could happen. Uh, It seems to me that what the Nevada Supreme Court has said in its opinion, that's what must happen in the future, that the defendant must be present at the probable cause determination in less than 48 hours, even though he doesn't have to be arraigned at that time.
7: That could be a possible reading of the Nevada case. Uh, That has not happened uh, since that time, and I believe in the event uh, that a remand does occur for the Nevada Supreme Court to clarify its opinion, it will go along with its past practices. There's certainly so, nothing in our McLaughlin case
0: that suggests a defendant would have to be personally present at the uh, uh, probable cause determination. Not that I ever We're read. Just following sure. Ger, we just followed Gerstein.
7: That, that's correct. With the very short remaining time that I have left, I would simply like to go on past the uh, these aspects of the case and suggest to the court that our, there are two reasons which have been fairly fully briefed in our briefs. Uh, why the exclusionary rule in this particular case or cases like it should not uh, occur. And one of them uh, clearly is that in this particular case, the uh, uh, statement, the the confession, if you will, of the defendant uh, was clearly not the fruit of the delay in the uh, finding of probable cause that occurred in this particular case. And we know that if there is no causal link uh, to the violation, then the exclusionary rule uh, should not work. And this case seems to be somewhat analogous to uh, the reasoning, at least, behind the case of New York versus Harris. And this case, like that one, uh, the probable cause existed at the very beginning. Uh, Some sort of a bad intervening event happened. In Powell, it was a patent arrest. In this case, it's a delay uh, of a finding of probable cause, which I would want to remind the court that there always was probable cause. The affidavit, which was eventually viewed and ruled upon, never changed. Uh, There was no exploitation of any delay to to change the nature and circumstances of that particular uh, affidavit. Um, And and the court in Harris seemed to indicate that the custody, albeit for the patent violation, that custody was still lawful. And in this case, I would say that the custody is still lawful even though there is a delay. There is a Fourth Amendment violation because of the delay, but it doesn't render the custody unlawful. And the confession or statement, then, is not a product of the delay. It, like the one in Harris, is the product of the probable cause arrest, an appropriate arrest. A man should be in prison or in jail, I'm sorry, for uh, the things that he has done and that the police know about at that time. They are then entitled uh, to go ask questions of him, uh, which they did. And we have to remember that, uh, as was brought out in the earlier argument, that those um, uh, same statements were were gotten from him several times, six times before, I believe, he told people uh, how these particular injuries occurred. Uh, He was more than willing, in fact, even eager to tell that story, and so there can be no Uh, reasonable assumption, I believe, here, that the the statements in question were in any way the product of some sort of a delay. Had the delay not happened, we still would have had the statements. He still would have been willing to tell us the same thing uh, that he told us on other occasions. The other reason for uh, the non-utilization of the exclusionary rule in this case uh, are the line of cases having to do with good faith. And those cases teach us that uh, when police officers re- reasonably rely on presumptively valid uh, statutes or uh, uh, search warrants, uh, that to, uh, to exclude the, the things that, that come from those uh, valid uh, pieces of evidence is to thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Seaton.
7: Uh, Mr. Estrada, we'll hear from you.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I would like to start by answering the question that was posed at the outset concerning the possibility of state remedies, and by saying that there is no reason to think in this case that there is any state remedy. In Powell's view, the State Court in this case, A, found that the Fourth Amendment was blatantly violated, but B, refused to give a federal remedy based on what everyone now says is a wrong view of federal retroactivity rule, rules. If there indeed, if there were indeed a separate and independent state remedy, the Supreme Court of Nevada, by hypothesis having found that the Fourth Amendment was violated, surely would have granted it. And indeed, it is a little bit strange that the principal authority cited for the claim that there is an independent state remedy in this court is the opinion of the Supreme Court of Nevada in this case, which, if it stands for anything, is that there is no state remedy. for the Why would it give a state remedy for a statute which it found was was
3: inapplicable because of, of its misunderstanding of retroactivity? It did not... It, it, it,
8: there, there are two different issues, Justice Souter. The Supreme Court of Nevada stated in its opinion that there is a remedy, uh, much like the McNabb-Mallory remedy for the violation of its statute. It also stated that as a matter of state law, that right is waivable. Now, neither of those two statements have anything to do with the error of federal law that the court made, which is to say that as a matter of federal law, there is no federal remedy available in this case. If we concede the premise for this court's having jurisdiction, which is the claim that the Supreme Court of Nevada necessarily found a Fourth Amendment violation in this case, then it must follow that there can be no independent state remedy for that, since if there were, the court surely would have given
2: it. It's just, uh, I don't I don't follow that line of reasoning because I thought the Nevada Supreme Court was saying it was a violation of a federal constitutional right, but it's not retroactive, and are we glad it isn't retroactive because if it were, we would have to release this man from incarceration totally. What they said, said was the statement."
8: it is not retroactive as a matter of federal law, Justice Ginsburg, which uh, if which is a So why would it be
2: retroactive as a matter of state law? But if they wouldn't, they think that the state law, at least in that respect, would be the same as the federal.
8: Yes, but they wouldn't have to. And unless there is something in what the court did to lead to the conclusion that the court felt compelled by its reading of federal law to say that there is no state remedy, uh, the court, having found that the Constitution was violated, would have given a state remedy if there were one. But,
5: Mr. Estrada, correct me if if you have a different interpretation. I had thought the submission from the petitioner was that if there had been a violation of federal law, if McLaughlin were retroactive, which it is, uh, that the state would have invoked its own McNabb-type rule to exclude the statement.
8: Uh, The court did find by hypothesis a Violation of the Fourth Amendment. It refused to give a federal remedy based on an error of federal law, but but that didn't keep the state from granting a state remedy if there were one. The problem with the argument is that the remedy that there is is a McNabb Mallory remedy, which the court stated is tailored to Fifth Amendment interests and which, as a matter of state law, is waivable. Uh, Now, well, it, I, I
5: suppose the, the uh, concern that I have, at least, is that the state court ought to be the one to make this explicit determination in the first instance. Well, uh, I, it, It's not clear to me that that's exact. that the Nevada court would have denied relief had it assumed a federal violation under Matt McLaughlin.
8: Well, I, we don't read the... What the, what the court said as indicating that the court felt compelled to deny a state remedy based on federal law. And unless the court can be read to have said so, uh, the judgment it rendered in this very case is evidence for the view that there is no independent state remedy. And that Mr. Strauss, excuse me
6: for interrupting, but I, maybe I'm not following you, but you're saying that the court said there was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And you mean with the McLaughlin rule? Yes. But they say it is important to note that the 48-hour requirement, mandated McLaughlin, does not apply to the case at hand. That seems to me to say it was not violated because it simply didn't apply, because they mistakenly thought it was not retroactive. Well, I think what they were saying, uh, and as we read it, Justice Stevens, is to say How can they find a violation of a rule that doesn't even apply to the case at hand? Well... say that, in I mean, I'm not... You know, I'm not interpolating. Those are the very words the court used. It does not apply to the case at hand. Why do you say that a rule that doesn't apply was found to have been violated?
8: Well, I was taking not our statement of what they did, but their statement as to why this court has jurisdiction, which is that the highest state court chose to notice a plain error and to waive a bar. If the state court didn't do that, then there is a bar to this court's jurisdiction.
6: If we take their... The, that federal rule that they misapplied is not McLaughlin, it's Griffith. It's Griffith as the federal rule that was misapplied, that the case was that was uh, did apply to judgments the final. Yes, of course. So and we have jurisdiction, no question we have jurisdiction. And we do agree that the Griffith rule was... Misapplied. And you do agree there was a federal rule?
8: Yes. And And we do. And
6: based on that violation of a federal rule, this court had jurisdiction. Uh, I think
8: that there's certainly much to be said for that view, and we have nothing to be said against that, is there? Well, the state has made. An argument to the opposite effect. You I don't have, subscribe to those arguments. Do you? Well, we have not subscribed one way or the other to any view, and we're happy to go forward on the view that the court does have jurisdiction. All I am saying is that from what the court did in this case, there is nothing that would lead one to think that there is an independent state remedy, uh, because the court stated the state rule as being one designed to. Protect the Fifth Amendment right and one in that light which is waivable under state law, and it found it waived. Well, there's just so much help one can get from this opinion,
0: Mr.
6: Estrada. It's not very much.
8: Um, I would not
6: disagree with you on
8: that, Mr. Chief Justice. On the other hand, uh, the court, this court has always held that it does not sit to overturn statements in opinions. And if there is nothing wrong with the judgment as a matter of federal law, and we say there is not, despite the error in the statement, then the, the judgment should not be overturned. And in our view, there is nothing wrong with the judgment as a matter of federal law, because as a matter of federal law, the statement is not a fruit of the timing violation on which the petitioner relies, and the good faith exception would apply to bar suppression, even if the statement is deemed a fruit in the circumstances of this case. All that assumes that, Hawaii, that the Nevada will not apply its Hubner
5: rule to a McLaughlin violation, and we don't know that for sure. Uh, I can understand the interest of the solicitor's office in arguing the exclusionary rule. That's a very important issue. I cannot understand the interest of the solicitor's office in urging uh, that we proceed to that uh, in the light of this this opaque opinion.
8: Well, that's, I mean, obviously reasonable minds can disagree about how what the court did may be read. All we're saying is that our reading is that it is fair to infer that there is no state remedy, and in the light of that, uh, the only issue for the court is whether there is a federal remedy. And for... uh, based on cases like Harris and Montalvo, we think that it is reasonably clear that as a matter of federal law, there is no federal remedy. If wouldn't, it be,
2: wouldn't it have been appropriate for the, um, to, to, instead of asking the court to decide what is a fairly weighty question, the, 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 what are the consequences of a McLaughlin oh. violation, to say this is a very poor case in which to make any such decision there are two paragraphs thrown into an opinion that's all about state law, why are you urging the court to make a significant decision in, in a case where this issue just crept into the case, this in and out, before anybody could notice it?
8: Because we, also, we only learn of the existence of the case after the case has been granted, uh, which we take to be an indication that the court is interested in dealing with the federal issues that there may be in the case. And in light of that assumption, uh, we thought that we would come into the case and give the court our views as to the federal issues, which are, as we have stated in in our brief, and I thank the court.
0: Thank you, Mr. Estrada. Mr. Pacheco, you have two minutes remaining.
1: I will try to talk fast, Your Honor. The answer to Justice Ginsburg's question about what happens if the Nevada Supreme Court says we are not going to decide this issue is that would then not be an adequate state ground for the decision. We submit that if the Nevada Supreme Court adopts a procedural bar rule that says we will forgive procedural bars so long as we don't have to reverse, but we will invoke procedural bars so long as we can affirm, that's not an independent and adequate state ground. And that, I submit, is the short answer to your concern about what happens if the case goes back. I submit that the McLaughlin violation, contrary to what counsel said...
2: In other words, are you arguing that the Nevada Supreme Court is a stopped... Howell didn't raise this issue. The court did on its own. And you're saying that now, having raised it, the court is a stop from withdrawing it?
1: Then then we have to litigate the procedural bar issue in the Nevada Supreme Court and ultimately in this court, but that's not right for decision Why
2: would that be a federal question?
1: Because the adequacy of a state procedural bar is always a question of federal law. Uh, to bar a review of a federal constitutional issue.
2: Which the is what sta- itself injected.
1: Yes. Yes, Your Honor. It reviewed the issue. That's the end of the question. Now, as to good faith, the state is relying on the statute, which it says has nothing to do with the probable cause determination, the first appearance statute, to say they could in good faith rely on that in allowing the 72-hour time limit. I submit that's entirely anomalous to say, on the one hand, uh, it has nothing to do with the probable cause determination, but on the other hand, that's the good faith reliance on the statute that uh, invokes Illinois versus Krull. With respect to Harris and the illegality of custody, illegal custody under McLaughlin is illegal custody. He shouldn't be in custody because it's illegal. The difference between Harris is the manner of arresting him was the constitutional violation. The custody was legal. Here, once the McLaughlin time limit was passed, the custody became illegal. He should not have been in custody under the Fourth Amendment at that point. I thank the court.
0: Thank you, Mr. Preshado. The case is submitted.
4: The honorable court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.